3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nations. We recognize their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis, and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, listeners. You're on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR, 855 AM. It is 7.01 in the morning. Good morning, Leila. Good morning, Priya. How are you going today? Well, so my my housemate's dog, Morgan, she bed hops. Bed and hops. so, like, it keeps me awake because she goes from bed to bed all night. But I really love it, so I'm in denial that it actually... Um, affects my sleep negatively. <laughs> I think that's beautiful. I think maybe maybe Morgan is like, oh, if I don't do this, then people will be worried that I don't love them equally in the house. <laughs> it's true. Or we were um, floating that maybe she's just like, why doesn't the pack all sleep in the same bed that on the floor? That is true. What the hell is going on? Why isn't everyone in my bed? <laughs> yeah. um, okay, well, uh, I also have a, a dog theory that I came up with on my ride here. Uh, please don't write or call in if you disagree. But my theory is that, uh, what is this? Uh, Labradors and Golden Retrievers and also every kind of oodle, very middle-class dogs. <laughs> I feel like this is, I know this from experience, uh, our family, very middle class, had a noodle. Um, mm. I just feel like that's a thing. I don't know. Yeah, I agree. Um, it's like you don't rescue a decrepit old oodle. I feel like that's the kind of dog you get new. Yeah, it's. I think like the other condition of it is um, for Labradors, Golden Retrievers, and oodles, at, for them to fulfill the middle class criteria, they also have to be bought as a puppy. I yes, think. yes, yes. Yeah. But they're not fancy. They're, yeah, no, they're not fancy, but yeah. they have to be gotten as a puppy. Um, and then they have, like, small health issues that mm. can be expensive later in life, which yes. I feel like is a middle-class dream. Anyway, um, we have a big final live show for you this week. Don't worry. We're still going to be here with you with our summer programming. We're, we're bringing you highlights from all of our favorite interviews across the year uh, over the next four weeks. But this will be our last live show, and then we'll join you back again in January. But do you want to kick us off with our rundown? Yes. So first up, we will be hearing from Dr. Riz Farthing, who is a policy worker who focuses on children's rights around technology and disadvantage. She is the Director of Children's Policy at Reset Tech and has worked in international think tanks and held academic posts at Oxford University in the UK and at RMIT here in Nam. She joins us today to speak about recent research by Reset Australia that has shown the current approach where the government allows social media industry to self-draft their own codes around online safety and online privacy for children is flawed. Next up, we will be hearing from Thomas Students, who is a welfare advocate and activist. And today they will be speaking to us about the second set of RoboDebt Royal Commission hearings, which wrapped up its first block of hearings on November 11th. The Royal Commission is investigating serious concerns about the establishment and legality of this devastating program of automated debt recovery. 
Thomas Students is a job seeker recipient and a member of the Australian Unemployed Workers Union. Cool. I'm really excited to hear um, a bit more about this because unfortunately we had to cut our first interview a little bit short. So I'm keen to hear some of the new takes, especially now that Scott Morrison has appeared before the commission. So after that, we're going to hear uh, an interview that I did earlier this week with Dr. Adam Fletcher, who's a lecturer at RMIT's Graduate School of Business and Law. And Adam spoke with me about a report that he authored for Human Rights Law Center, which reviews the improper scrutiny of human rights concerns in bills that were passed by federal parliament between 2019 and 2022. And this review highlights the need for a federal charter of human rights, given Australia's lack of robust human rights safeguards at the national level. And then finally, we'll be joined by Anna Draffin, who's the CEO of the Public Interest Journalism Initiative, to discuss the Treasury's 12-month review of the news media and digital platforms mandatory bargaining code, which was released early this month, as well as the need for additional regulatory changes to address outstanding concerns about Australia's media environment. Now, the code came into effect in March 2021, and it seeks to regulate the power imbalance in commercial relationships between digital platforms and Australian media organizations. I think uh, there was a lot of there was a lot of to do at that time uh, about how this would affect things in terms of media visibility on companies like Facebook. Um, but it'll be really interesting to talk through what this looks like 12 months on and especially the impacts that it's had on smaller media businesses and independent media organizations. So that's all coming up on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. Stay tuned. 3CR would like to thank our sponsors, Earth Greetings. Cards that connect, care, and celebrate. Support wildlife and habitat with every purchase. Inspired by nature, giving back to the planet. Learn more at earthgreetings.com.au. And we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And we're going to jump into our news headlines for today. So, um, Leela, take it away. These are the news headlines for Thursday, the 15th of December. The Yurok Justice Commission is currently holding hearings into the impact of child protection and criminal justice systems on First Peoples in Victoria. The hearings heard that poor record-keeping within child protection services affects its ability to look after children in care. A review found that the department did not have current addresses for over a 100 children in care. It also heard that it was only Aboriginal children that were subjected to strip searches in custody, something that the police denied when confronted by Kurnai Legal. Families are not given adequate support to address the reasons why children are removed, such as drug use, mental health, family violence and experiencing homelessness. CEO of Jura, Antoinette Braybrook, stated that women cannot heal in prison and prisons are being used to solve issues of mental health and homelessness. <clears throat> CEO of Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service, Narita Waite, told commissioners yesterday that VALS has no confidence whatsoever in the current system of police oversight. VALS is calling for a fully independent police oversight system to improve justice outcomes for First Peoples. Also in the news headlines this week, former Prime Minister Scott Morrison appeared before the Robodet Royal Commission yesterday. 
The inquiry is looking into the former federal government program that wrongly accused thousands of welfare recipients of owing Centrelink money. The scheme ran for over four years until the program was declared unlawful in the federal court in November 2019, leading to a $1.8 billion settlement for welfare recipients. Scott Morrison said that he was given very explicit advice that no legislation was needed for the scheme and that he trusted his department and was not aware of its unlawful nature until August of 2019. However, he was the Minister for Social Services in 2015 and stated that the late Department of Human Services had already done, quote, extensive, end quote, work on the proposal. He was also the treasurer when the scheme was ramped up to issue hundreds of thousands of unlawful debts and the prime minister when it was challenged in court. The inquiry heard evidence that a need for, quote, policy and legislative change, end quote, was included in a February 2015 executive minute to Mr. Morrison, but a budget submission a short time later did not include that phrase. In other news, legislation to introduce power price caps and billions in energy bill relief has enough support to pass Parliament. The government has agreed to fund household and businesses to electrify space and water heaters and cooking appliances to move away from gas and reduce power consumption longer term. Greens leader Adam Bant says the estimated savings for switching from gas appliances to electric could be up to $1,900 a year for some households. But too many people had been barred from those savings by the upfront costs of switching over. The legislation being introduced today will allow the federal government to cap gas prices, but coal will have to be capped by the states. Opposition leader Peter Dutton has said that planned caps will be damaging to the economy and argued that they will, in fact, drive up power prices as producers withdraw supply from the market. However, the government will not need the opposition's support when the bill is brought before Parliament today. And finally, in headlines for today, Western Australia is setting children on a, quote, fast track, end quote, to detention and prison through housing policies that result in severe overcrowding and homelessness, according to families and justice advocates. Lawyer Kate Davis has said that the Housing Authority's eviction of children to homelessness is a significant contributor to the youth justice problem. The ABC states that these comments come amid calls to lift the age of criminal responsibility and hold an inquiry into systemic problems in the juvenile justice system, which have seen children housed in adult prisons and confined to their cells for more than 20 hours a day. Aboriginal homelessness advocate Betsy Buchanan believes WA's youth justice issues today are directly linked to housing policies that have disproportionately affected Aboriginal families, with 50% of total evictions in 2021 and 2022 being households with at least one Indigenous tenant. Of the 629 young people who were put into youth detention in WA last year, 125 were wards of the state. These have been the news headlines for Thursday the 15th of December. You're listening to 3CR on 855 AM. is shining, or at least it's attempting to, so get your picnic blankets out and gather your mates and stock up on your summer wine. We're so excited that our summer wine fundraiser is back. 
This year we're selling delicious wine generously provided by 3CR supporter Jamsheed Wines. Just $20 per bottle or you can snap up even more of a bargain by buying in a dozen or half dozen lots and mixes. Order online 3cr.org.au forward slash shop or call the station on 9419 8377 during business hours. Jamsheed Wines is a 3CR supporter. It's almost summer, and I can't wait for the Sporting Record Summer Series. We're able to stretch our legs with four one-hour episodes, starting on Thursday the 22nd of December at the normal time of 4pm. We have some very interesting guests lined up for you, so don't miss it. Every Thursday at 4pm here on 855 3CR. They're pulling on the boots in Brazil and wiping off the eggshells in Moravin. Fascism's on the march and we say, yeah, nah. Yena Passaran is a new weekly program on 3CR dedicated to tracking this rise in Australia, Aotearoa and all around our increasingly warm little globe. Every Thursday at 4.30pm, we'll be talking to writers and fighters about some angry blighters. And we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And Inez, take it away with our first interview. Thank you. So we are now joined by Dr. Riz Farthing, who's a policy worker who focuses on children's rights around technology and disadvantage. She's the Director of Children's Policy at Reset Tech and has worked in international think tanks and held academic posts at Oxford University and RMIT. She joins us today to speak about the recent research by Reset that has shown the current approach where the government allows the social media industry to self-daft their codes around online safety and children's privacy is flawed. Thanks so much for joining us here today, Riz. No, thank you for having me. Well, I think we want, I wanted to start off by saying that, you know, on Human Rights Day, a collection of children's rights organisations have urged the government to reconsider how it advances children's rights in the digital age. And also that only 21% of Australian adults say they would trust social media companies to actually write the codes around children's young uh, online safety and privacy. And young people themselves agree that only 14% of teenagers say that they would trust social media companies to, quote, write their own rules. Could you tell us maybe a little bit more about the purpose of the code social media companies use to protect the rights of safety and privacy of children? 
sure. Um, it's a really good question. So basically, look, Australia has really good laws around online safety, which give us the eSafety Commissioner and a public complaints mechanism that can take down a lot of harmful content, which is great. But this only kicks in after harmful stuff has been posted and reported, right? So when it comes to the upstream stuff, the requirements that could actually stop harmful content and harmful practices before they reach the public, before they cause that harm, our online safety laws leave these largely to be addressed through codes. But here's the kicker. In Australia, industry themselves are left to write these codes. So we've got the social media industry writing the online safety codes for children and young people. And this is the exact same industry that we know, you know, it really doesn't value safety that, that highly. So, you know, despite what we saw about how Meta and Facebook value kids' safety from, you know, everything that Francis Haldon leaked and showed us last year, it's their representatives alongside other representatives who were the ones who were drafting the proposed online safety codes for social media companies in Australia right now. And as far as I can tell, I don't know. I mean, I just think that these companies have had 20 years to improve their own processes, to improve their own practices already, but they haven't. Um, and so I'm not 100% sure why the government is letting them write their own codes, because I'm not sure that they're going to write codes that, that force them to do any improvements, because otherwise they just do them themselves. It just seems a, a bit like we're, um, we're going to be spinning in the sand here. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the biggest concern... Um, well, one of the biggest concerns we have is around, yeah, privacy. And I know that common, the common concern, I guess, also with age at, at which social media accounts are set to private, what does it mean for like a 16 or 17-year-old to have an account that's private as well? Yeah, look, um, it, it means a lot. Um, so when a young person has a private account, they're not discoverable or they're not recommended to an adult stranger to, to friend or follower, whatever it's called on that platform. And this can have really huge safety implications. So one of Meta's own internal documents that was uncovered by Francis Haugen last year, um, it said that up to 75% of called inappropriate adult minor contact, contact on that platform or what you and I might call grooming. Um, that happened because young people and adult strangers had been connected by Facebook's people you may know algorithm. So defaulting kids to private accounts is really about ensuring that all young people get that little bit extra help, like a little bit of an extra nudge to be safe and private, rather than having extra risks sort of heaped on them. And in the rest of the world, where codes have been drafted by regulators or legislators, those codes actually say, look, Whenever anyone under 18 opens a new account, it should be defaulted to the sort of privacy to the max, you know, the highest privacy settings possible on that platform. Whereas in Australia, where we've let industry draft our proposed codes, they've said every new account under the age of 16 needs to be set to these privacy to the max default settings. So in effect, industry that runs platforms that operate globally, it's the same platform globally, They've decided that Australian 16 and 17-year-olds will be that little bit less protected than 16 and 17-year-olds in Ireland, in California, in the UK, where regulators have drafted the code. And I don't know. I mean, to me, I think that sticks. I reckon Australian kids, and, and you know, all kids for that matter, deserve the best protections we can offer them. But that's not what we get when we let industry draft their own laws. Yeah, it sounds like there's a real problem with regulation and the way Australia is really not 
I guess, on the same kind of standard internationally as it really should be. I, and also, f- going back to, like, the safety of children, um, knowing that a lot of yeah. this has also happened through people you already know is, uh, seems kind of ridiculous to me. But I guess what does it also mean for data collection and what about reporting standards if there's if there if we believe that there is like a serious immediate threat to a child what happens online yeah look i mean i think these are just two other great examples where the proposed australian codes these very codes that industry has drafted are weaker than codes that regulators in the rest of the world have written so in you know in europe in california tech companies can't collect kids precise location data you know, unless they really need it, like it's a map app. But things like, you know, the games that run on your phone, photo fillers, joke apps, those sort of things are not allowed to collect kids' location data. But in Australia, again, what we've seen is industry pitch this lower standard. And what they've basically said is, nah, mate, you know, um, we can collect and trade all this data ourselves, but we just won't publicly broadcast it, right? So they've set the rule lower. It's not about collecting data. It's about just not broadcasting it which absolutely stinks. It leaves kids' location data open to hacks, as we've seen, as mistakes. Um, And it also allows these products to track kids' locations unnecessarily as well, which is a bit stalkery. So what we see, like, right throughout these codes that industry has drafted is just they've pitched the standard for Australian children and young people a little bit lower than what they're going to have to provide children and young people in other parts of the world where regulators have written codes. That sounds really uh, abominable, <laughs> and knowing that, all, I, I don't know, correct me if I'm wrong here, but apparently Australia has passed the world's first online safety laws for children, so technically it should be the safest for young people online. I mean, they got a head start, but I guess why, why isn't it yet? Yeah, look, I mean, you're right. Um, we're absolutely world-leading when it comes to our legislation. We've got this great legislation about content and takedown and a brilliant um, public complaints mechanism and a great e-safety commissioner. But we've really let ourselves down when it comes to implementing this upstream stuff. So there's regulations about changes that tech needs to make to stop harms happening in the first place. It's this stuff that could really transform the digital environment to be safer. So there's, you know, there's less harmful content that needs to go to e-safety in the first place. Um, but the Australian approach really is just, you know, okay, well, we'll let industry draft their own codes around this stuff and they can, they can work this out. Um, and it's just, it just fails children. Yeah, I mean, when people are writing their own codes or even <laughs> oftentimes when people are like investigating themselves, we don't usually get the most independent and thorough mm-hmm. kind of codes that also are not for the best interests of the people that it needs to serve. I guess given this, mm. what, uh, who should be writing the codes and regulating, regulating them, you know, with yeah, children's best interests and safety and privacy at heart? Uh, look, I think this one's a no-brainer. You know, what we've got is we've got to bin these weak codes that have been drafted by industry that haven't yet been signed off. It's not too late. What we need to do instead is do what happens all around the world, everywhere else. We need to unleash our expert regulators and let e-safety draft the codes around how to meet basic safety expectations. Um, and as you mentioned at the top there, we, we recently polled the public about this and they absolutely agreed. We asked um, a representative sample of adults who they thought should draft the codes around online safety and 73% of people said it should be the e-safety commissioner. 
Um, so there's real public support for, for a new approach for asking our e-safety commission to draft our codes around online safety. Um, and, and if we don't, there's going to be a real trust gap. So we also ask in that same poll, you know, look, would you trust social media, the social media industry, to draft their codes if they did? And 71%. So, you know, you're talking the majority of the population said they didn't trust the social media industry to draft their own codes. So, in effect, what we've got at the moment is we've got an unpopular, ineffective approach through co-regulation. And I reckon it's time to bin it and let our regulators get on with the job of writing their codes and regulating them like everywhere else in the world. Yep, that sounds like a really fantastic step forward and knowing that the public agrees. And I guess also I, I personally don't know what an e-safety commissioner is. Would you mind telling uh, me and like the listeners more about that? Yeah, sure. So um, so what Australia has is we have an online safety act that's been passed by um, uh, Canberra, passed by Parliament, so we've got a law in place. And that law sets up an independent regulator called the e-safety commissioner. And it gives the e-safety commissioner broad powers and those broad powers are investigative, to research, um, to educate, to help people, and also run this public complaints mechanism and ensure that, you know, if, if something goes wrong, like you're a young person, you're being bullied online, you've got somewhere that you can, you can speak to, you can go and they can help you out. So they're actually an independent body, um, but they operate because there's a law that says this is how they can operate, these are their powers. Um, and they really can step in um, and change things when, when we unleash them and let them. Okay, fantastic. Yeah, I feel like there's knowing that there's a place to go and has more, more trust and more broad powers, I think that's a, a wonderful thing that we can all hopefully look forward to. I guess lastly, would you recommend, I feel like we've spoken about a few policy recommendations here, but is there anything that you would recommend, I guess, uh, personally uh, for more effective regulation or even things that you know we can do uh, for people who have children in their lives or children or teenagers themselves to, yeah, uphold safety and privacy yeah. a little bit more? I mean, I think that's such a good question. Um, and I think, you know, I'm not 100% sure that we need to leave it up to, to children and young people and teenagers and families to try and keep themselves safe online. Um, you know, parents and, and kids are already trying as hard as they can and doing yeah. a lot. Um, but what we need to see is we need to see changes from these big tech companies that are building these risky and harmful platforms in the first place. And what we've got to see is we've got to see more of these upstream reforms, more of these regulations that make tech companies improve their systems and their processes. Things like algorithms, how do they work? Things like do companies enforce their terms and conditions? We need to be able to regulate on that stuff. Otherwise, if we only focus on taking content down, our poor regulators are going to be forever playing whack-a-mole, you know, and taking down this bad video or closing this harmful account. Um, what we really need is big systems changes. Um, and we can we can see this happen. We can push for it. Um, parliaments and regulators around the world are, are doing this. Um, we just need to, to insist that Australia does, meaningfully does this as well. Yeah, I think knowing that, <laughs> that metaphor of playing whack-a-mole versus having proper systemic policy, strong changes, I think, yeah, that's definitely a really important key recommendation. Uh, I think we are coming to the end of our interview, but is there anything else that you would like to highlight at the moment? 
No, um, I'd just like to say thank you very much for taking time out to talk to me. I really, I really appreciate it. Well, thank you so much. I know that you're actually currently <laughs> in London now, um, and I hope you have a good rest of your night or day. <laughs> uh, but thank you so much for taking the time, and it's been really insightful and eye-opening. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye. And we're on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And you just heard from Dr. Riz Farthing, who's a policy worker who focuses on children's rights around technology and disadvantage. She's the director of children's policy at Reset Tech and has worked in international think tanks and held academic posts at Oxford University in the UK and RMIT here in NARM. And she joined Inez today to speak about recent research by Reset Australia, which showed that the current approach where the government allows the social media industry to self-draft their own codes around online safety and online uh, privacy for children is flawed. And this, I think, is a really interesting addition to some of the conversations we've been having across this year with Digital Rights Watch and Economic... uh, Sorry, I always get that wrong. Electronic Frontiers Australia um, about privacy and online safety and the way that we manage things in so, so that people can really maximize their ability to, um, you know, maintain their privacy and safety online without having um, regulatory overreach that ends up cracking down on folks like, you know, the LGBTQIA plus community, on sex workers. And so I think it's a really interesting ongoing conversation. So it is 729 in the morning and you're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 a.m. Have you heard about 3CR's national programs? Come and at you on community radio stations around Australia, produced in the studios of 3CR Melbourne. Services will be cut, jobs may well be lost, and workers' entitlements will be undermined. Their basic human rights are as important as everyone else. Over 200 million years, individual species have evolved. I mean, birds were once dinosaurs. Anything nasty online seems to be targeted against women. Muckety is... A bad deal, but Muckley is absolutely not a done deal. You're listening to Women on the Line. Welcome again to Lost in Science. And welcome to another edition of the Radioactive Show. You've been listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. Hello and welcome to Accent of Women. Anarchist Wall this week. Listen to Beyond Zero, global warming science, solutions and action. You are listening to Let the Bands Play. Tune in to Stick Together, Worker Stories and Union News. Grassroots Voices broadcast weekly on the Community Radio Network. And we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And next up, welfare advocate and activist Thomas Student joins us to speak about the second set of RoboDebt Royal Commission hearings, which wrapped up its first block of hearings on November 11th. The Royal Commission is investigating serious concerns about the establishment and legality of this devastating program of automated debt recovery. Thomas is a job seeker recipient and a member of the Australian Unemployed Workers Union. So welcome, Thomas, job seeker to job seeker. I always love an opportunity to do an interview of that nature. Good morning. Um, so and here we are at work. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the most important work. Um, so you've been covering the Royal Commission in detail since it began in October, and today we welcome you back to cover the second block of hearings. As you mentioned you. when speaking to Priya um, earlier in November on the 17th, Royal Commissions can be really information dense and pretty hard to decode what's important for like the average onlooker 
And this is something that I believe has really been exacerbated since Mr. Morrison took the stand yesterday. Mm. Could you please outline the main takeaways from this second block of hearing? Yes, well, we'll get to him in a minute, I suppose. Uh, but he does attract a lot of attention, um, and there's actually a lot more important things happen. Mm. Um, one of which is that the Commonwealth Ombudsman, which investigated the scheme um, and basically cleared it, and then people were able to wave that report around, it meant the scheme was able to continue legitimately um, for a while. Um, anyway, it turns out that they were basically... <laughs> collaborating with the departments they were investigating to write the reports um, to the extent of copying and pasting directly what the departments have told them. Um, and there's, you know, communication within the departments saying, oh, they're really under pressure at the moment. They'll probably just accept whatever, whatever copy and paste job we give them. Mm. Um, so that's interesting. They'll be called, um, sorry, they've volunteered someone to have questioning they can't be compelled by a royal commission. That seems pretty problematic. Um, wow. But they've agreed to, finally. So we'll get to hear from them. Um, that was a bit of a mind-blower. Um, but what is more important that is what we heard from frontline workers, specifically. Um, we heard from the Commonwealth Public Sector Union. Um, a couple of their senior officials detailed the impact on frontline workers and how they raise their concerns to the union, like directly, numerously, specifically figuring out what was wrong basically immediately um, and, you know, detail on how the union was ignored. Um, Secretary Catherine Campbell made an interesting inference that they might, you know, perpetrate a fraud by putting a fake whistleblower up. Not sure what she was doing there. Um, so, yes, we had... <laughs> Centrelink workers in Tasmania who <clears throat> basically faced disciplinary action um, for protesting robo-debt. Um, we heard about all staff emails basically threatening uh, termination and saying, be careful what you say on social media, um, which Colleen Taylor, who's uh, one of the workers we heard from directly, uh, she took to heart and she emailed the secretary of the department, Catherine Campbell, directly mm. um, with, the, with the takedown of the scheme, like exactly what's wrong with it. And not only that, but saying, like, if you need me to explain this to you, I can do that. Um, and like, yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, they all knew. And then you get to the senior executive level and they're telling us that they've never read the Social Security Act. But this, the secretary of the department responsible for administering it. Again, self-evidently pretty problematic. Um, so, yes, these frontline workers were ignored. Um, they were threatened into silence, um, and there were horrible psychological impacts on them. Uh, and so those, that's the main takeaways for me. Uh, the, the, the department was in a protracted industrial dispute for three years. So all their pay was frozen, and then this, this was dropped on their heads. Truly horrible situation. And coming from the advocacy side, there's a bit of a ship's passing in the night sort of vibe about like we were all fighting this together, um, but we 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 weren't really in contact because they they aren't able to under the law a lot of the time. Um, so yeah, that's really what I've taken out of it. And then we haven't heard from politicians yet. So we heard from Maurice Payne, Scott Morrison, and you know yeah. 
they did politician things. <laughs> yeah. It's really troubling to hear that there were so many frontline workers who were effectively being silenced, um, who were speaking out about what was going on really early on. Mm. Um, so thank you for bringing those points to light that I, I really did have some trouble kind of sorting through all the rhetoric. Um, so yeah, it's great to hear you kind of distill those important takeaways. So speaking mm. of rhetoric, um, yeah. Mr. Morrison's welfare cop rhetoric really cements our welfare scheme as what we already know to be a punitive system. During RoboDebt's implementation, there were also public statements by ministers containing notably threatening language, including this quote from the then Human Services Minister Alan Tudge, quote, we will, be, we will find you, we will track you down, and we will have you repay those debts, and you may end up in prison, unquote. What do you think this tells us about the motives of the politicians and public servants behind the RoboDebt scheme? Um, yeah, so something has just occurred to me. Was he quoting the film Taken with Liam Neeson? <laughs> I don't know who you are. Anyway. It's very um, dramatic. But yeah, it's like, yeah. It's, it's ridiculous language um, and designed to scare people, yes. Um, so in terms of the motive, it's slightly more complex in that most of them are just like, this is business as usual. Everyone's always done this. Um Morrison, in particular, literally went through Labor press releases on multiple occasions, even though it was irrelevant, um, saying, look, they did it too, um, which is because he's conflating data matching with, uh, like, using averaging as part of that process and then finding some evidence that says there's a debt mm. versus, you know, just saying, dividing by 26 and being like, yeah, you are the difference, like, he he doesn't have a strong concept of what the difference is, like, at all. Um, There's a huge so deflection. he thinks he's just doing the same thing they've been doing for the past 20 years, which is, you know, false, or he wouldn't be in the dock at the Royal Commission, right? Mm. <laughs> um, so, but yeah, he, he, he feels persecuted because he thinks he's just doing the right thing, trying to get value for the taxpayer, which, you know... You and I are working right now. We know a lot of people on settling payments are working. So mm. a lot of them paying tax. You have to claim the tax free threshold to get settling for the payments. But then you have to pay tax on whatever you earn. Mm -hmm. So, um, but yeah, they all think they're doing the same thing. There's a, there's a statutory requirement for the departments to recover debt. And that just looms over everything in their mind. We have to do this. Um, and the reason they're so sort of fixated on it, I think, is because you know, welfare budgets are under scrutiny in a way that, say, defense budgets are. Like, you buy a lot of submarines, for instance, um, you're going to try and find that money somewhere else. Uh, here's a politically uh, softer target, so to speak. Um, yeah. So that pressure, whether it's explicit in their minds or not, is always there. Um, and, and the thing is, they've been squeezing blood from a stone from welfare recipients for years, and the returns are diminishing. Um, and so I think... All of those factors are uh, a pressure cooker of, of things that led to robo debt. Um, mm -hmm. So it is some parts of it are conscious and people being opportunistic, um, and some parts of it are more grounded in the normative expectations of 
of the system of government, which appears deeply broken, having watched 200 hours of this stuff, um, I have to tell you. Yeah. Um, but they think they're doing a good thing, right? Like, Morrison's like, I'm the son of a policeman. Um, yeah, that comment was... And, the, and, and it's so normal in their mind to conflate overpayment debts, which can be just honest mistakes, happen all the time, for any number of reasons. Um, mm-hmm. And actual fraud, which is a crime. Like, mm-hmm. let me be clear, there's a distinction. Not declaring income is not actually a criminal offence in any way. That's settled at law, um, unless you are perpetrating fraud by doing that. Yeah. So it's not the same thing. Um, and so Morrison's waving around Labour press releases like, this is just what we've always done. And he's technically wrong, but in some ways he's not. Um so yes, we're getting sort of closer to a picture of what everyone's motives were and why they did what they did. We're not quite there yet. This could be a good few months, but um, and and to an extent, the motives aren't the issue. It's, it's how we stop this from happening again. Like how we uh, corral all these forces in a way that um, makes sure we don't hurt people with our welfare system because. It's meant to be beneficial. Like, that is the constitutional basis on which it exists. And there's all this anti-welfare stuff, which is completely at odds with it. And so it's tearing itself apart um, variously. So, yeah. Uh, deeply contradictory, and you can see it manifested in the minds of, of the executives and the politicians that made this happen between themselves, let's say. Definitely. And... One thing that I found really interesting in terms of, um, I guess, the motives or the underlying thinking behind this policy was how Scott Morrison kind of carried over his motivations from role as immigration minister. And I think what you pointed out is like kind of targeting vulnerable groups to extract money, basically. I can see a lot of parallels between the criminalisation, really, of poor people and of immigrants and using the immigration system as a way to extract a lot of money via, you know, visa applications and those incredibly inhumane systems. And, yeah, it really seemed like some of the way that um, Mr Morrison was describing his role um, as the Minister for human services was that he was just taking his experience from immigration minister as you know a cop basically that was set to punish people and yeah and a community they can't fight back yeah and those are those same communities by the way they were uh, disproportionately affected by robot debt because you know the, the rates of and the quality of the English they speak is lower. So trying to interpret this for someone who does speak English natively is like <laughs> yeah. impossible because they were lying to you. So if you just see a big thing of money that you are, you're probably just going to pay it straight back. So cause, And you may be scared of the government because maybe they threaten to kill you and that's why you're in Australia. So yeah. Yeah, it's incredibly difficult to resist those systems. Even yeah. as and yeah, a native English speaker, Morrison. and I remember as a six, I think I was around 16, maybe when this policy came into effect and there was a lot of news about robo-debt. And I remember feeling like a criminal being on Centrelink yeah. at that time and my mum really drilling it into me that if I didn't report my income 
which was like $50 a week or something, <laughs> they were going to get me. And I felt... It's the vibe. <laughs> it's just the vibe. Yeah. It was And very it's been that way for longer than I've been alive. Yeah. Yeah. So we had to do something about that. Yeah. <laughs> so over the course of this second block of hearings, it's become clear that income averaging for the purpose of debt recovery is unlawful. The Australian Taxation Office provided the PayG pay data of Centrelink customers to the Department of Human Services under a voluntary guideline, despite holding concerns about the use of their data for the purpose of welfare debt collection. I was going to ask you what you think should be done to ensure government bodies are held accountable for how they share our data. Yeah, well, the, the short answer is literally anything at all. <laughs> There's so, just every time anything comes up, I'm like, if we had some sort of Human Rights Act, if we had something enforceable, if, and even at a, at a lower level than that, if we had an ombudsman that didn't collaborate with the departments on independently investigating them, like, that would have done wonders. Um, so, like, the fact that it's all voluntary, that is is a huge issue. You can't just leave it to, to good fortune and everyone being on the same page. It doesn't work that way. Um, there's, it's the whole problem. Like, the Westminster system is shot through with this. Like, accountability is to the public, so they don't consider that you need to enforce it necessarily um, because everyone will be so outraged, they'll just vote you out, basically. That's the accountability mechanism. Um, so when we've got a record load levels of engagement with our politics. Um, we need, like, laws and stuff to keep an eye on them. Um, yeah. So, like, I guess data matching, people have said, oh, it's not bad in and of itself. Uh, yeah, sure, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't need limits, um, like, anything, really. Um, and it just, it's exceeded the pace of the reform, the technology. So just nothing's been done as a problem of succession successive government. Um, and, like, the problem largely is that they're all considering money when they're making these decisions to, you know, put things through a computer. It's not greatly technically complex the way they did it, quite crude and... Uh, uh, what's the word? Anyway. Um, mm, yeah. But basically, they're considering money. Like, they're just looking at figures on a balance sheet. They're not considering people. So there needs to be some sort of check that's like, did you consider human rights properly? But then that would need to be in a framework of there being laws about that. Yeah. Um, so, yes, data matching is the issue, but more generally, it is about accountability in government, um, just, you know, the politicization and degradation of the public service, um, which CPSU said a lot about, uh, just funding constantly being withheld all the the outsourcing, the consulting form, huge amounts of money. Um, and labor hire, which is another issue with robo-debt. They were just churning labor hire people through the call centers. Mm-hmm. And when people learned what they were working on, they would run away because, well, once they figured it out after a couple of days of the job. Um, so, you know, if there was a more uh, less casualized workforce, sorry, mm-hmm. then they wouldn't have been able to do that. Um, so there's, you know, it's about 
data sharing, but it's a whole framework of things that Australia really needs to reconsider for a number of reasons, not just because of robo-debt, but it does strengthen the argument for that. Yeah, definitely. You've got some great points there. So worryingly, there have already been whisperings earlier this year about a robo-debt 2.0 under Minister for Social Services Amanda Rishworth and Minister for Government Services and the NDIS Bill Shorten with a media announcement about plans for a renewed system of welfare debt recovery. What do you make of this? Um, Yeah, so... There are a lot of aspects of robo-debt that remain in the welfare system. I mean, we heard a lot yesterday and and throughout that it was in a package of reforms of this type that were passed by the Morrison government, um, which goes to the the Workforce Australia system and the mutual obligation points um, crap. That was all all him and Kelly Tash and, and stuff, and then the Labor voted for it. So now it's the system. Mm-hmm. So, you know, just because they're not doing robo-debt identically again um, doesn't mean it's necessarily any better. We've heard from the community legal centres that, like, settling debt letters still aren't, like, sort of valid in the form of a, of a debt letter. They're, they're presented as accounts payable. It often mm-hmm. says that on the, on the letter. It doesn't tell you how it was calculated. Pretty much just as bad still. It's just that they're not dealing from you necessarily anymore. Sometimes they still do. Um, so, and, and as I said before, Morrison's up there. He's waving around Bill Shorten and mentioning him constantly. Like, Shorten loves this stuff. He was mentioning, um, uh, there was an interview where he went on Sky News to talk to former Labor, um, I think he was an MP or a senator, I can't remember. Graham Richardson. Anyway, Morrison was saying he invented data matching because Mm -hmm. he's right-wing now, so they obviously cooked that up between themselves. Oh, I invented doing this for Labor, so they're all full of shit. Anyway, um, so, yes, there is a distinction, but it's not really that much of a distinction between (laughs) what Labor are doing. And, And just because it's lawful doesn't mean that it's right to go after people for making honest mistakes that are just about a few thousand dollars here and there. Like, you get $30 a year in tax out of Chevron. For Christ's sake, go and hit them up for money. Like, yeah. You have this structural, this uh, statutory requirement to, to get these debts. That's fine. But <laughs> there's also the beneficial purpose of the welfare system. It's meant to help people. It's not meant to be a magic pudding or a piñata that you can just wax the budget, say. It's ridiculous. Yeah, it's um, really... And so, overall, that is still the idea. That's still a normative political context. So, Labor need to have a real think about why Morrison is up there waving their names around. Yeah, it's really um, a punch below the belt for people that are already kind of struggling and in really vulnerable positions. Oh, yeah. And it is very much like same system, different outcome. Who I may say, <laughs> Labor are doing nothing for materially yes. right now. Yeah, there hasn't been any meaningful change as someone on JobSeeker. If anything, it's just gotten slightly more confusing and frightening with all the with all the um kind of surface level changes, I guess. It's so scary that I got a job doing this. 
for myself. Well, Thank you. So I think we're going to have to wrap up, but this has been incredibly informative, really important information that you've gone over today. Thomas, thank you so much for joining us, and I look forward to talking to you again next year. Thank you. Talk to you then. Bye. We just heard from welfare advocate and activist Thomas Students, who spoke to us about the second block of RoboDebt Royal Commission hearings, which began on the 5th of December. The Royal Commission is investigating serious concerns about the establishment and legality of this devastating program of automated debt recovery. You're listening to Thursday Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. That was an excellent interview. Thank you so much, Leela. And I re- I'm really glad that Thomas got to take us through this last set of hearings, but also uh, into some of the ongoing structural concerns in the system. And something that Thomas flagged, I think, is a really good introduction to our next interview, where I caught up with Dr. Adam Fletcher, lecturer at RMIT's Graduate School of Business and Law this week, to talk about a report that he authored for the Human Rights Law Center, which reviews the improper scrutiny of human rights concerns in bills passed by federal parliament between 2019 and 2022, but obviously has implications for a whole lot more legislation that has been drafted over the past years. And um, it highlights the need for a federal charter of human rights, given Australia's lack of robust human rights safeguards at the national level, which I'm sure influences things like the development of punitive social security policy. So let's jump into that interview now. So I thought we could begin with a bit of a sketch of our current human rights scrutiny regime and in particular the role of Australia's Parliamentary Joint Committee on Human Rights. So can you give us some of the lay of the land here? Yeah, sure. So this is something that I've been looking at for a number of years now. I um, actually did a, a, my PhD on it um, going back. I started nearly 10 years ago now. And what prompted me to look into it was this big national consultation that was done in 2008-2009 where a consultation committee appointed um, way back when Rudd was Prime Minister travelled around Australia and did thousands of consultation sessions and took submissions on um, whether and how human rights could be better protected in Australia and Long story short, that committee had a series of a couple of dozen, actually a few dozen recommendations. And one of those recommendations was a federal human rights act, as you might imagine, being a fairly obvious way to improve the legal protection of Australians' human rights. But um, there were other important recommendations too. So, for example, um, human rights education in schools and for public officials, uh, and also a recommendation to scrutinise new legislation for human rights compatibility, which is actually the only sort of um, what we call the plank of the national human rights framework which survives to this day. The other things like uh, human rights education and a human rights act, they either fell by the wayside or never happened at all. Yeah, and I think... That does kind of raise some concerns if the only thing that's sort of providing any kind of, well, I guess it's scrutiny, not necessarily protection, is um, really at this parliamentary level where there's no associated enforceability. 
Now, you recently authored a report for the Human Rights Law Centre, which investigates the state of human rights scrutiny in the Australian Parliament. And I'm interested in some of the key issues that you investigated there. Yeah, I did. So the Human Rights Law Centre reached out to me. They, uh, as you may know, have an ongoing campaign to adopt a federal charter of rights or Human Rights Act. And um, complementary to that is looking at this existing, I guess, what's sometimes described as flagship human rights protection mechanism, which is uh, led by the Parliamentary Joint Committee on Human Rights and um, involves public servants working on the drafting of bills, uh, drafting what's known as a statement of compatibility with human rights. So they assess whether there's any um, potential incompatibilities with Australia's international obligations under various human rights treaties, UN treaties. And then the parliamentary committee looks at that assessment, decides whether it agrees, whether um, whether the law which has been tabled potentially raises issues with, you know, it could be anything, it could be privacy, the right to vote, freedom of expression, whatever it may be. And um, that has now been in place for a whole decade. So it, it began operation in 2012. Uh, I had done previous research, as I mentioned, and we wanted to look at the last few years, so leading up to its 10-year anniversary, and um, see whether the impact of this scrutiny regime had uh stepped up, whether it had changed since the early years um, when uh, my research and research of other scholars, sort of most prominently Professor George Williams, uh, Professor Rosalind Dixon, I cite a whole range, Professor Simon Rice, uh, I cite a whole range of scholars in the report. Uh, we all kind of concluded that its, its impact was really limited because the Scrutiny Committee, um, it is not one of the most influential committees in the federal parliament, and it struggles to... Uh, it produces excellent reports on the compatibility of new laws, but it struggles to get the government to make any changes to, to those laws in response. Yeah, and I think in my, in my own work uh, looking at social security policy, it has been... Uh, both heartening and very frustrating to read those reports sometimes where, you know, occasionally there'll be a really strong indictment of uh, a piece of legislation by the, the scrutiny committee. But at the end of the day, there's nothing that's really done to, to prevent that from, you know, being enacted. And um, I was hoping that you could maybe uh, tell us a bit about some of the aspects that you covered in the report. And I was thinking uh, in particular of Chapter 3, which looks at legislative instruments of concern, um, because I find this quite interesting in terms of their ability to evade immediate parliamentary scrutiny. So can you tell us a bit more about some of the human rights implications of delegated legislation and maybe a bit about what it is for, for people that might not be familiar? Yeah, sure. Thanks for picking up on that, Priya. So uh, as you can probably tell from the report, it's uh, an interest of mine uh, in wearing another hat. I teach administrative law, which is essentially the law of 
how people in Australia can assert their some of their rights against government. It's not it's not human rights law, but it's the way you can contest government decisions, for example. And crucially, it's also the only way you can contest these uh, pieces of delegated legislation that I mention in the report. So delegated legislation, I can only give a brief overview. I'm used to talking about this in great depth. But um, delegated legislation is essentially the parliament under our constitution has supreme lawmaking authority. It makes all the acts and then it delegates some power to the executive to make laws which need to be made urgently or uh, require some sort of in-depth technical expertise that may be a specialised agency. Um, you know, it could be about fertiliser, it could be about meteorology, like those sorts of things sometimes require regulations uh, which are so specialised or so urgent that the parliament can't practically deal with them. And um, a large proportion of our law is actually... Uh, these sorts of regulations, ministerial directions, um, you know, they might relate, relate to all the visa rules that you see. Um, they, they relate to, uh, you know, regulation of illicit substances and a, a massive number of things that are regulated in Australia are done uh, under this system of delegated legislation where the executive makes the law. It's essentially just registered with Parliament on what's called the Federal Register of Legislation, and then it goes into force, right? So it doesn't have this uh, this great process, great, <laughs> this um, process of checks and balances that an act of Parliament has to go through as policy development process, there's consultation with stakeholders, there is, um, you know, parliamentary debate, sometimes public debate, uh, over the content of the law, usually delegated legislation is passed much more quickly with little debate, you know, occasionally a, a consultation with just any stakeholders the government chooses, which may be only one or two. Uh, so you can see how there's potential there for delegated legislation to um, have a great effect on our lives without being adequately scrutinised. Yeah, and, it, you know, there's this post hoc kind of assessment uh, about whether it's really doing the job that it's meant to and whether it should be disallowed. But um, I think as well with the development of, of legislation in general, you know, there's been some pretty terrible legislation that's been developed in the social security area that even has gone through the scrutiny process and, you know, has had to develop this statement of compatibility with human rights and then been assessed in that way, had the debates and yet has still gone ahead. So I was also hoping that you could tell us about this disjuncture between requirements for parliamentary scrutiny and then the sort of enforceability on issues of human rights. Yeah, that's the crucial issue, Priya. So, there, there are sort of, as I mentioned, the committee, um, if you have a look at some of the committee's own assessments, so for example, as part of their 10-year anniversary, they published a paper on um, you know, statistics, how many bills they've affected and so on, uh, and 
you know, there is some influence. You can measure some influence, and they say that there's much more indirect influence, so their members talking to ministers in the halls of parliament and so on. But really, what we would like to see, myself, the Human Rights Law Centre, we would like to see more overt influence, right? We would like to see them being part of what was originally intended when this was recommended by the consultation committee, which is a dialogue between parliament and the executive, and Parliament would say we have concerns about compatibility with Australia's international human rights obligations, and then the executive would say, oh, well, that's concerning. Let us go back and review and consider whether we could improve compatibility, but you know, really that second part is usually lacking. Usually there's a dismissive response or a response from ministers just asserting, reasserting compatibility in their I suppose, interpretation of things. Um, but if we had one of the other recommendations of the consultation committee, which is a national human rights act, then there would be a complementary role for the courts. Okay, So there would be an expanded dialogue, if you like, like exists in the ACT, in Victoria, and now in Queensland, where cases are sometimes brought under one of these contested laws by individuals affected by them. And then the, um, the, the relevant court might produce a ruling which says this law can't be interpreted compatibly with human rights or, <clears throat> excuse me, otherwise presents human rights problems. And then, you know, it kind of places that issue on a, uh, a more public footing. There's more likely to be debate. Uh, then the parliament and the courts, I suppose, are able to weigh in with their view of the appropriateness of the law, the appropriateness of the implementation of the law, perhaps. Um, so if we had a Human Rights Act, not only might people be able to get redress directly for violations of their rights, which would obviously be something you would expect to be available in, in Western democracy, uh, it would also enhance this, this idea of dialogue to improve new laws so that there are, we hope, fewer violations in the future. Yeah, and hopefully it would have a requirement associated with it for a sort of retrospective review of legislation that's already in force in relation to the Charter. Now, I think we've pretty much covered everything, but is there anything else you wanted to add before we wrap up? Perhaps just one thing I pick up on one thing you were saying is that, you know, it comes back to there's a lot of high level discussion. You know, is it compatible? Is it legal? Is this kind of legislation important? But we have to remember, as you said, it's about things like the basics card, right? Telling people how they can spend their their welfare income when, of course, they... I mean, there are issues that the government's trying to address with these contested laws, but they don't always include enough safeguards. So they might put in place an immigration law banning people from entry without sufficiently considering situations of urgency or um, you know, need. They might put in place uh, a welfare law which unfairly targets certain areas or, or peoples. Um, without considering their individual circumstances because, you know, maybe they have just considered it from the point of view of Canberra and they haven't really thought about how it will operate in practice. And really that's what these mechanisms are about. They're about 
protecting vulnerable Australians from, uh, you know, insufficient consideration of their situation by government lawmakers. Yeah, absolutely. And I really appreciate you taking the time to sort of take us through this and especially explain delegated legislation, considering that it does make up so much of, um, you know, so much of the legislation that we do have that is in force. So thank you so much, Adam. It's a pleasure. Thanks, Priya. And you're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And that was Dr. Adam Fletcher, a lecturer at RMIT's Graduate School of Business and Law, who spoke with me earlier this week about a report he co-authored, uh, sorry, or authored for the Human Rights Law Center, reviewing the improper scrutiny of human rights concerns in bills passed by federal parliament between 2019 and 2022, and recommending the need for a federal charter of human rights. And next up, we will be hearing the new track from Kian, Summer Love. And hopefully it can um, combat this wintry weather.
that is Keon's new track, Summer Love. And hopefully it's got you moving. It's got you excited. Um, a really lovely one to, um, I suppose, get rid of some of those wintry blues, which uh, appear to be sticking around. Um, La Nina hitting again. Um, but you're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And we are now joined by Anna Draffin, who is the CEO of the Public Interest Journalism Initiative. And Anna joins us to discuss the Treasury's 12-month review of the news media and digital platforms mandatory bargaining code, which was released early this month, as well as the, um, the need for additional regulatory changes to address outstanding concerns about Australia's media environment. And this code, which came into effect in March 2021, seeks to regulate the power imbalance in commercial relationships between digital platforms and Australian media organisations. Anna, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Priya. Great to be here. Yeah, and it's great to, to have you on to chat about this because I think there was a lot of conversation in early 2021 and in that lead up thinking about how, um, you know, the code might work and how it might affect media organizations' interactions with social media platforms. And then we saw a bit of a drop-off of um, media visibility on social media platforms. Uh, but then there hasn't been a huge amount of coverage or discussion about it since. So this 12-month review, I think, is a really good prompt to think about you know, the impacts of the code and you know what's, right, what's going right, what's going wrong, what needs to change. Um, So as I mentioned at the top, it's a mandatory code of conduct that was intended to address this power imbalance in commercial relationships between designated digital platforms and Australian media businesses. So could you start off by reminding listeners a bit about how the code works and why it was put into place in the first place? Yeah, so as you said, the code was intended to um, address a commercial um, competition imbalance that the ACCC had deemed between digital platforms and news media. So um, if you think about it, the ACCC um, data shows that 81 cents in the dollar in advertising spend in Australia goes to Google and and Meta, and that leaves 19% for the rest of the news media market in terms of um, advertising revenue. So you can really see how the decoupling of that revenue um, has undermined the business model for news media. Um, And so this code was going somewhat to addressing that competition imbalance where you think about the size of the digital platforms relative to the size of the news media business. There is an imbalance there. Um, and we've seen that certainly this morning through the reporting on the safety to similar effects when you think of just how large some of those tech companies are. Um, so the other thing to remember too is whilst it's been quiet in terms of coverage on the code here in Australia, globally it has not because many countries have um, followed Australia's lead. It was global first legislation um, back in March last year and we're now seeing New Zealand, Canada and the US as well as the UK and EU all quickly following in behind. So it has been that first task at attempting to regulate the digital platforms in, in a market where they have um, a huge um, uh, power mm. um, that is considered imbalanced in terms of their competition. Yeah, and now that we're sort of 12 months um, past the the establishment of the code, the Treasury has flagged in its review of the code um, 
has flagged it as a success to date. Um, but before we look at maybe some of the limitations of this assessment, can you tell us about some of the key findings in the Treasury's review of the code's implementation so far? So the Treasury's finding of success um, is looking at the commercial outcomes. So mm. there's an estimated $200 million per annum of deals flowing through to news media businesses, which in aggregate um, is substantial and certainly um, should um, be applauded in terms of providing necessary new revenue into news media companies. However, um, what it doesn't do is look at the breakdown um, of those dollars and the directions in which they flow because the code in itself is actually inactive at the moment because no digital platform has been designated. Instead, what you're seeing is those commercial deals are struck outside the boundaries of the legislation. So that does still leave a large amount of discretionary power with the digital platforms in determining who they will and won't bargain with. Um, and we've seen, for example, um, in the case of Meta, that you know, the largest exemption there is that they've chosen not to negotiate with SBS. From Pidgey's point of view, SBS is the largest producer of non-English public interest journalism in the country, and we would see that as a distinct weakness um, in, in the legislation's um, existence at the moment. Um, but until a platform gets designated under the code, there is no compulsion as to who uh, they do or don't deal with. That being said, we do know that the government agencies um, have uh, been routinely commenting. Rod Sims, when he was still chair in the ACCC, certainly provided public comment around what his expectations would be in terms of the digital platform's investment in news media. Mm. Yeah, and I mean, it is it is concerning to see sort of, um, you know, public broadcasters be left out of of these um, these concerns because, you know, at the end of the day, as you mentioned, it'll be certain segments of the population as well that are, um, you know, you know, ha- have their access to news media um, through social media platforms potentially curtailed um, based on this. So um, the review. It, contained a list of recommendations which included that the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission or ACCC should be granted further information gathering powers to find out about these commercial agreements that have been drawn up under the code. So can you tell us a bit about the significance of this recommendation which I understand Pidgey has welcomed and take us through your concerns about some of the other recommendations that were made? Yeah, so Pidgey's, we're really pleased to see the report pick up that. That has been a key recommendation of ours throughout the legislation's development and then through uh, the legislation's review. So making sure that the ACCC has an ongoing role in terms of monitoring the outcomes um, and producing the aggregate data so that there is a degree of transparency and accountability um, back to the general public so we can actually... Um, really ascertain whether there are genuine returns to the public, um, particularly given that the legislation isn't intended to directly fund public interest journalism. So what it's there is to address the competition imbalances we've discussed, but that really, if we contextualise that, you need a thriving media sector in order to um, ensure and cross-subsidise the heavy costs uh, that 
uh, producing public interest journalism requires. So this is a part about having a healthy, thriving media sector such that public interest journalism um, remains invested in across all levels of news production. What the review didn't do was go into looking at um, guidelines as to when the digital platform may not have uh, made a large enough contribution to news media and would therefore be designated under the code. So there's still a lack of transparency as to the measures under which the Treasurer may designate a digital um, platform in our mind. The other thing is that the code, uh, the report has recommended that the code be reviewed five years from commencement. So that would take us through to 2025. Now we know um, from reports and speaking to news media businesses that many of those deals actually expire after three years. So we have some concerns around that review period that you may potentially see deals lapsed. Um, and so with the continued fragility of the news sector, that is a slight cause for concern. That being said, of course, that doesn't mean that the Treasurer in the meantime at that point may not choose to designate a digital platform, but that would be difficult without an evidence base hmm. sitting in front of the Minister in order to inform their decisions. Yeah, and I, I, I understand as well that, you know, these recommendations and, you know, some of the limitations of the code itself are part of the fact that, you know, it sits within a much broader uh, media environment in Australia where there are other concerns uh, that kind of intersect with the code but also can't necessarily be captured by, uh, you know, one particular regulatory instrument. So I was wondering if you could also speak to this broader Australian media environment in um, and, you know, some of the key issues that requ- require greater legislative or regulatory attention, for example, you know, concerns about media diversity and how these concerns might be addressed in ways that are complementary to the code, but also help it to, you know, do its best job and push it for- further. So there's two options that immediately spring to mind. Um, we've always maintained that the code was never going to be the silver bullet to sustaining public interest journalism. Um, one complementary um, policy intervention we see that would be of immediate benefit to the code itself is the introduction of a public interest journalism tax rebate. So that's where news businesses who are investing in public interest journalism can um, claim those expenses um, and receive a rebate. So that really incentivises more investment specific to public interest journalism. So that's how you actually narrow the focus and help encourage news, uh, news media businesses to invest more heavily in news at all levels. Now, Canada already has um, such a rebate in place. But what they don't have is a news media bargaining code that creates new revenues in order to be reinvested. So that's one. And then secondly, using the US example, what we've seen over the last 10 years is an explosion in non-profit news models, very much um, led by communities where uh, they're wanting to see more local news on the ground and they're coming up with non-profit models. So again... 
there's an opportunity here for the introduction of public interest journalism as a charitable category under the Charities Act, and that would really help incentivise and meet those gaps in local news coverage that you know, otherwise can't be um, addressed through a commercial news business. Mm, yeah, I mean, it feels uh, kind of interesting to be having this conversation on a community radio station um, as one of those kinds of organizations that does try and, you know, especially through these current affairs shows and, you know, Thursday Breakfast, which I've been very privileged to be a part of, uh, tries to, you know, draw attention to current affairs issues in a way that, uh, you know, wouldn't necessarily be platformed through mainstream media platforms, but nonetheless, I would say, provides some valuable, you know, analysis of current affairs topics. Um, so I know across this interview, you've mentioned public interest journalism, but for listeners who might be a bit confused about what that term incorporates, um, I was wondering if you could speak to the importance of public interest journalism what you define it as, and why PG identifies this as a public good. So that's the uh, information, fact-based reporting that helps um, inform our decision-making as uh, citizens. So if you think about uh, reporting on local government, on different levels of government, court reporting, crime reporting and particularly in regional and rural Australia, you know, the importance of community reporting, and we've all really experienced the importance of, of local news reporting through the pandemic and natural disasters of recent years. So that's what we're really focused on, is making sure that there is a provision of public interest journalism for all members of Australian communities, um, and making sure that there's levels of public interest journalism that focus really on that local, but also the regional as well as the state and national news of import. Mm. Yeah. But, it, but I think the other thing too, Craig, just your comment around the importance of community radio, really just like to emphasise that because PG um, is a major supporter of, of the importance of community radio with over 400 stations across the country. And it should be noted that the code, when you look at news format, radio really is not covered by the code because, as you say, the content delivery is less well-designed for the purposes of digital platforms. So you can see how it's of um, less well direct relevance to digital platforms. So that, again is why we need other interventions like um, non-profit status and uh, tax rebates and, and other levers as well to to look after the whole news sector. The code also doesn't pick up wholesale news providers nor all the startups that have really started to proliferate over the last couple of years. Yeah. And, you know, when you think about, um, you know, in the community media sector, the number of community language programs, for example, that do, um, you know, incredibly important work in disseminating information. And again, I'll use the example of during the pandemic, being able to share public health information. Um, it is concerning to see these kinds of organizations not necessarily um you know, represent a, a protected category within the broader scope of public interest journalism. So um, thank you very much for, for emphasizing that. Um, Anna, is there anything else that you wanted to add before we wrap up? 
think the big thing is really how we as communities come together and start to give voice around what we want in terms of acceptable levels of local news and really starting to reach out to our local MPs and our local news businesses and really start help driving what we want to see in the future. Um, news is like any other uh, infrastructure in that you often don't notice it's not there until it's gone and it's much more expensive mm. to bring back. So I really would want to encourage people to really think about what they're seeing in their community and what they want in terms of local news. PG does map news production across Australia mm-hmm. and we have seen over 400 changes um, in news production just over the last three years with the, with the pandemic. Mm. Um, alarmingly, um, there's been over 112 closures of mastheads or stations just in the last three years now. Yeah. That, that compares to, to the ACCC's data of 102 closures in, a de- in the decade prior to that. Yeah. So you can see that real acceleration. So it is you know, COVID and the natural disasters have reminded us on the importance of news, but now we need to really start thinking about the long term of how we want to see news supplied into our communities totally. to give us voice and keep us engaged. Thank you so much, Anna. We're going to have to wrap up now, but I really appreciate you making the time. And we'll put links in our show notes to all of the information and also to uh, PG's tracking of this issue. So thank you so much. Thanks, Bray. Appreciate the interest. No worries. And we're coming up to the end of our show on Thursday morning breakfast, 3CR 855 AM. Just letting you know there's going to be a pop-up shop on Saturday at 3CR from 9 AM to 12 PM. And also the Pets of 3CR calendar has sold out, but you can still order a copy for January by going to 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. We'll catch you later.